0: Good morning and uh, welcome to Jewish Faith and Jewish Facts. I'm Rabbi Stephen Garton speaking to you this morning from Ottawa, Canada. As you may remember, each and every week we uh, look into the Torah portion, known in Hebrew as the parashah, the weekly reading that is offered on Monday, Thursdays, and Shabbat, Saturday, in the synagogues throughout the world. This week, the Torah portion is entitled Vayishlach, and he was sent, or he returned. We will discuss how we can interpret that. It is found in uh, Genesis 32 and is a rather lengthy parasha inasmuch as it continues to the end of chapter 36. Let me give you an overview before I introduce my guest, and we unpack and probe some of the more interesting aspects of this week's reading. In this week's reading, the third of the three patriarchs, Jacob, returns to the Holy Land after a 20-year stay in Haran and he sends angels or emissaries to Esau, his brother, in hopes of uh, finding a reconciliation. The angels or messengers return and report that his brother is on the war path with 400 armed men. Jacob prepares for war, prays, and sends Esau a large gift consisting of hundreds of herds of livestock to appease him. That evening, Jacob ferries his families and possessions across the Yabuk River. He, however, remains behind and encounters an angel that the text uh, identifies as an ish, but tradition tells us it's an angel with whom he wrestles until daybreak. Jacob suffers a dislocated hip, but eventually... Uh, overpowers his uh, supernatural creature, who in defeat bestows upon him the name Israel, which means he who prevails over the divine. Eventually, Jacob and Esau meet, embrace, kiss, seem to have a reconciliation, but part ways. Jacob purchases a lot of land near Shechem, whose crown prince is also called Shechem, But then the story turns somewhat violent as Shechem abducts and has relations with Jacob's daughter, Dina. Dina's brothers, Simeon and Levi, avenge the deed by killing all the male inhabitants of the city after rendering them vulnerable by convincing them to circumcise themselves in order to convert and for them to have an uh, official marriage with the daughter of Jacob, Dina. Jacob seems unaffected by these events and journeys on. Rachel, his most beloved wife, dies while giving birth to his second son, Benjamin, and is buried in a roadside grave near Bethlehem. Reuben loses the birthright, which was his because of his uh, birth order, because he interferes with his father's marital life. Jacob arrives in Hebron to see his father Isaac, who later dies according to the tradition at 180. Rebekah also has passed away before Jacob's arrival. Our parasha concludes with a detailed account of Esau's wives, children, and grandchildren. The family history of the people of Seir, among whom Esau settled, and a list of the eight kings who ruled Edom, the land of Esau and Seir's descendants. It is a Torah portion filled with uh, stories that you may remember from your childhood and perhaps a story or two that surprises you. With me this morning to discuss our parashah is Rabbi Paul Gollum the senior scholar and rabbi emeritus of Vassar Temple in Poughkeepsie, New York, after serving there as rabbi for 15 years. Rabbi Gollum is a graduate of Hebrew Union Jewish Institute of Religion in New York, and he has served as director of Hillel Foundations on university campuses, the Union of Reform Judaism Regional Director for Canada, and as well has served as a congregational rabbi. He has taught undergraduate and graduate courses in philosophy, classical, and modern Jewish thought. He has served as the editor-in-chief of the CCR Journal, Reform Jewish Quarterly, and has published articles on biblical studies, modern Jewish thought, interfaith relations, and Reform Zionism. He has actively represented the reform movement uh, through his work in ArtsUp the Reformed Zionist Organization of America, and has served on the North American Board of the World Union of Progressive Judaism. There is much more that one can say about Rabbi Gollum. He is a scholar and a thoughtful teacher, and it's a pleasure to welcome him to Jewish Faith and Jewish Facts. Good morning. Good morning. Good to see you again. It is a pleasure to have you back. And I can't think of anyone better able to help us understand some of the nuances of this week's parasha. There are, of course, two main stories. The story of Jacob wrestling and the story of Dina. But perhaps we should begin by you recounting for our listeners why Jacob needs to have a reconciliation with his brother Esau. Yes. Because that's the backdrop to this week's parasha.
1: Yes. Uh, What took place uh, not in last week's Torah portion, but in the previous week's Torah portion, is that Jacob, dare I use the term, wrestled the blessing uh, that Isaac was going to give to his beloved son Esau. Jacob wrestled that blessing, uh, in essence, from Esau. Uh, he, he perpetrated a ruse in which he appeared to be Esau before his father. Esau was left without the blessing. Uh, and the, the sense is left, less, left, left to us, uh, that Esau is none too happy and probably wants to rid Jacob of that blessing, uh, by sort of pulling it right out from inside of him. Uh, so Jacob runs. He runs. He, uh, he marries, uh, first uh, the older sister, Leah, the younger sister, Rebecca, creates a something of a, uh, a decent sized, uh, property for himself and then returns to the land. Uh, and in this returning to the land, which is a rather amazing thing, this is where you've decided that you're, um, you're, you've lived in a dysfunctional, Household. No, everybody screams at each other. You've gone off. Not only have you gone off, but where you've gone off has been extraordinarily good to you. You've great raised a large family. You've, you've created a, a wonderful fortune. Everything is wonderful. And yet you still want to go back to the dysfunctional family. It's an amazing, uh, act on Jacob's part, but he does come back. And that's where we're at at the beginning of this uh, Torah portion.
0: So he's returned to what the text calls the Holy Land, um, in which he's bound by uh literary motif to meet his uh, elder brother, knowing that he has uh, wrestled away the birthright in a way that is uh, not the physical wrestling, but certainly um, a dishonest wrestling. Um, and, um, they meet in our parasha and they find some sort of, uh, reconciliation. And that reconciliation is sandwiched between the two stories that we most, uh, want to explore with our listeners. Um, I want to start with the f- story that comes first chronologically, and that is the wrestling. This is not the first time that Jacob, um, has a dream. Uh in the Torah portion you referred to, you know, just a moment ago, 2 weeks ago we had another dream. That was a dream of uh angels going up and down the ladder. Um in uh, the establishment of Jacob's uh connection to the divine. Uh so now he has a second dream. And tell us what happens in this dream and how you understand its meaning.
1: Well, this is this is interesting, and you used a, a really useful term. You talk about the literary construct. Uh, it, it's an interesting thing to ask ourselves, how do we want to regard the Bible, particularly the book of Genesis, which is a series of narratives? It, it's a traditional notion to understand the text as, as given to us by God, But on the other hand, what we know we're looking at is writing. A person wrote this down. Uh, And uh, so even if we want to hold to the position that ultimately uh, in its origins, it is is truly divine or divinely uh, inspired, which, by the way, I I take at face value. I I, I wouldn't read this uh, Torah portion year after year after year and look at it if I didn't think it was anything less than divinely inspired. But I also know that it's a literary construct. It, it represents not exactly what God said, but rather what we heard
0: and how we construct it. Now, having said all of that... And just let me reemphasize that for our listener. Uh, the rabbi is not taking the divine out of the text. The rabbi is clearly indicating that the divine is apprehended by the writer, and it's through that apprehension, the medium that the writer, uh, the medium that the writer is, that he offers us the divine message, which is, of course, different than tradition, which says God literally with His finger wrote each word, um, and uh, it's important distinction because in acknowledging that there is a human as well as divine uh component to this text we are able to enter into a conversation about its meaning yes just as the author interpreted right and
1: i and i do that because i want i want to see how beautifully this is constructed um uh, there we're in the third part of a three part saga. We had Abraham, we had Isaac, we now have Jacob. We know we've got this uh, three-part saga and we see Jacob as reflecting and representing that which comes before him, not the least of which in this particular story that we're encountering right now about the wrestling in that he's going to get his name changed. After all, when we first enter into the saga, we have two individuals who are called Avram and Sarai. And at some point, God turns to them and say, you will no longer be Avram, you will be Avraham. And you will no longer be Sarai, you will be Sarah. Uh, Here we get the same thing, a a name change. But this name change is rather radical. After all, Avram and Avraham are pretty close. Sarai and Sarah even closer. Uh, but to go from Yaakov, Jacob, to Yisrael, Israel, is a rather dramatic name change. Name uh, change in name, uh, and uh, it, it suggests that, finally, when we get to two individuals who made an emigration from outside of the land into the land, had their name changed, then meet an individual who remains steady and constant on that land and therefore never has the name changed to a person who had to flee from that land but now returns and once more has a name change. And here's here's our story. Now, you introduced the story as a dream. When you look at the text, it's not so clear.
0: Help our listeners understand the confusion. Yeah. It says, at that night, right? Yeah. Uh, So if we look at the exact wording of it, because you're correct, in the first episode, it's very direct that it says, halam, that he dreamed. Yeah, uh, And in this episode, it said, that same night he arose, correct? And it simply says, after ask, taking them across the stream, he sent all his possession. Jacob was left alone, correct? Yeah. And a man wrestled with him until the break of dawn. So you, you it's a dream-like sequence,
1: but it's not presented as a dream. It's presented as if that—that's what Jacob did. He wrestled all night long, uh, <clears throat> and uh, and we're given then a description of the of the wrestling. And then, and as you pointed out, the term that's used here is not angel, malach; it is person, ish, uh, and it's only at the end that Jacob recognizes that this not can't be merely a person it needs to be an emissary of God namely an angel uh and uh it, it Jacob asks for the angel's name it, it, having his own name changed uh but the uh the angel simply does not give him the name so but then Jacob does something interesting He names, if he doesn't name the angel, it's almost as if he gives a name to the angel by giving a name to the
0: place. He names the place as Peniel. We were speaking about Jacob and his wrestling and all the wonderful issues associated with it. The name change, the question of who he really was wrestling with. And this story has resonated throughout history. It has become part and parcel of uh, the literary world. And Rabbi Gollum, I know that you have uh, thought greatly about this story and have seen some parallels um, in some modern Hebrew literature. Perhaps you could share with our listeners um, your thoughts on how this has been impactful on modern Hebrew literature. Yes, I'm going to
1: read a poem by the outstanding uh, poet of the 20th century of the state of Israel, a poet named Yehuda Amichai. Um, I'll be reading it in a moment. It's one of his earlier poems. Uh, I did want to pick up on this notion of of the ambiguity of whether this is an actual event, because after all, he walks away from it with a limp, which suggests something, or whether this is something going on in his mind a dream-like experience. This poem actually picks up on that. Uh, on the ambiguity. Yeah, on the ambiguity. Uh, and it and it, it changes it in, in, a, in a number of interesting ways. And it's one of the reasons why I pointed out that you, uh, in the text itself, you have, while Jacob did not seem to learn the angel's name, Jacob nonetheless names something at the end, as, as if giving a name to the angel. Uh, and here's the way Amichai handles it. You, you'll hear the, the lovely sorts of changes uh, in the mixture between this being dream or reverie and actual event. So this is Amichai in, in translation. And do you have a sense of when this poem was written just for oh, our listeners? Oh, absolutely. It, w- it was written in the mid-1950s. So one and of it's his really earliest
0: poems. List- listeners. Uh, this is not a two thousand year old poem. Yes, this is a twenty first century poem, really a twentieth century, right. yeah. century poem, mid twentieth uh, century poem, written in the context of Yehuda Amichai living in the state of Israel shortly after its independence.
1: Right, and also at a time in which he was especially interested in uh, in biblical texts. Good. So- So he he writes, here's the poem. Toward morning, she sighed and grabbed him so and defeated him, and he grabbed her so and defeated her. The two of them knew that the hold brings death and restrained each other from naming names. But in the first light of dawn, he saw her body, which had stayed white in the places the bathing suit yesterday covered, after they called her suddenly from above twice, as one calls a little girl from her game in the yard, and
0: he knew her name, and he let her go. Wow. So it's uh, there. there's so many ways to uh, enter into a conversation about this poem. Uh, certainly the fact that it suggests that it's both ephemeral, transcendent, but real. The concept of the wrestling as
1: having an intimacy that is not a conflict, but of something deeper. And and this is, by the way, picked up by medieval commentators who do raise the question, exactly what's going on here? Is Jacob actually wrestling with someone or rather, is he wrestling with himself? the urges to plow ahead confront his brother meet his destiny or to go back and uh you know live a life filled with comfort and ease and family and and wealth and so forth uh it 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 recognizes the incredible inflection point that this is this is an incredible turning point uh, in uh, though at the beginning of the Bible, it's a turning point for the entire Bible.
0: It's interesting that in the poem, um, as you suggest, it makes very uh, real the intimacy of the act of wrestling, and as in all intimate acts, the possibility of name change, uh, reflecting a new kind of interaction, is certainly possible. But you. He suggested that in the poem, there's this ambiguity about Jacob going forward, and while he does go forward, he limps forward. He doesn't go forward untouched. Yeah, that's fine.
1: But I, 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 I think that what's useful here is is the the notion of the intimacy because that's then going to be picked up in the next story, the, the story of
0: Dina. Amichai um, emphasizes the intimacy between uh, the two participants in this wrestling match. Um, do you think he's got uh, a particular purpose in uh, expressing what in the text doesn't appear to be outwardly intimate in a very outwardly intimate manner?
1: Yeah, yeah I think he does that because that's in essence what happens. Uh, just as... Abraham is bonded to God by responding to the call to, to travel to the land that God will show him. Here, Jacob is going to be bonded to God by his willingness to wrestle with his own doubts and hesitations and to move forward. It's, it's a, it, it's, it's making real the sense of bonding and it's doing so by suggesting, I think, something that is an element of real life, that h- how do you connect to the ones whom you love? Uh, that it, it is not just simply a, a fairy tale of bliss all the time, but there's an actual tension, a, a friction in the love itself, but it is a love. Uh, and that's what uh, Amichai is, is reminding of us reminding us in the, in this wonderful uh, way of depicting the wrestling. Uh, and I think it's especially powerful, though we, we won't have too much time to do it is then to compare it with this next story that comes up about Dina here. You've got real intimacy. You've got sexual, uh, uh, uh attack, but is it love? It's something else. Uh, and it, it, it uh it suggests a, a uh the two sides of what otherwise would be sexual intimacy, uh one that moves one forward and the other one that cleaves creates a a, a powerful sense of division. a division that is not merely between uh, 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 how would I put it between uh the um, the Shechemites and uh, Jacob's family, but between Jacob himself and his two sons, Levi and Shimon.
0: The notion of closeness or intimacy and separation is so palpable in this Torah portion. Uh, Esau and Jacob have a moment of intimacy, and then they go separate ways.
1: Absolutely.
0: Uh, The angel or the messenger and Jacob have uh, intimate uh, encounter and Jacob goes on his way but limps forward. Yes. And then the Torah portion really does conclude with this episode of the Shechemites and Shechem and Dina. And though you're correct, we don't have time to... uh Interface with the convert, with the parashah directly on it. The pattern continues. Dina leaves the narrative after this story. We don't see her again. Yes. Jacob is um, somewhat ambivalent about how to respond to this. His two elder sons are not ambivalent at all, but they're punished for acting decisively. Right. Um, And the Shechemites who tradition doesn't deal well with but in the context of the text seem to accept the invitation to convert in order to affirm what appeared to be uh an ancient approach to love, perhaps more uh aggressive than our tradition today uh, implies, and they are rejected yes uh for their honesty or their uh industriousness in wanting to support their leader, Shem. Yes. Coming forward, going away, division, space. And it all, of course, is the lead-in to uh, the journey to Egypt.
1: Yes, absolutely. It also, as, as you mentioned in the original summary, you've got three oldest children of Jacob. You have Reuben who is alienated by his his own sexual indiscretion. Then you have Levy and Simon or Shimon, uh, who are uh, alienated in part, at least from Jacob, for their passion. Uh, uh, it, it, all of this has to do with passion and all of it has to do with the question of whether you harness the passion, in a proper fashion, or do you harness it in a, in a fashion that's ultimately destructive? It's interesting to see that uh, Reuven no longer has pride of leadership in the family as it goes on. It's going to be Judah and Joseph. That Levi never gets land, though he does become the priest. His his passion is is moved in a different direction. And Shimon
0: essentially disappears. Right. He moves off stage uh with Dina. Yeah. Right. And in, in many ways is replaced by uh Joseph's sons. Yes. Menasha and Ephraim. Exactly. Exactly. I want to thank my guest this morning, Rabbi uh Paul Gollum of uh, Rabbi Emeritus of Vassar Congregate Vassar Temple in Poughkeepsie, New York for helping us unpack a very challenging, challenging Torah portion. We only had enough time to really touch the surface of this very uh, deep and... Uh, I've used the word challenging, but I think it is a challenging Torah portion. Two stories that call out for uh, in-depth analysis. So I thank you, Rabbi Gollum.
1: Now it's always a pleasure.
0: For Jewish Faith and Jewish Facts, I'm Rabbi Stephen Garton. You can hear uh, a broadcast of this morning's conversation on CHRI 91.1 UFM. You can hear a podcast on the website chri.ca, and you can hear us on either iTunes or see us on YouTube. Shalom and have a good day.